0: Chapter One. I was reminded even this morning as we were singing that our faith is not cognitive only, but is meant to touch our affections. Um, as I was singing both of those songs, um, you could feel the Lord's presence um, prodding us. And and God is interested in your affections. By the way, I don't know if if we communicate that well enough, but He is. He's not just concerned. Uh, with you from the neck up Uh, you know he's not just concerned that you know his word but he's concerned that your affections are turned toward him that you get excited at the knowledge of him and you get excited over the fact that you get to be in his house he's he's deeply concerned uh, for your affections Um, it's interesting the world knows this that's why uh, sporting events are so exciting That's why they have halftime shows and loud music, because they understand the power of affections. So so do music. Um, So does movies, right? Those things tap into your affections because they are a part of you. The same is true for your faith. Your faith is a matter of not just cognitive, what you know, but also your affections, what you feel. And so one of the reasons why music plays such a powerful role in our worship is because music touches our affections in a way mere words cannot and so I hope you see that even in all worship uh, Scott takes great pains to choose music that not only feed our minds but also touch your affections and lead you into the presence of the Lord like none other in fact there's a wonderful study to be made about the transcendency of music. Music has a universal language. It's amazing to me that you could have people who speak different languages play the same piece of music. Why? Because there's a universality to music. There's a transcendence to music. Um, The likes of which cannot be repeated anywhere else. So I hope as you come into worship, you participate in the music. Sing out, even if you don't have a good voice. I don't. But I know the value of singing out. I know the value of going before the Lord and offering my praise to him because I know that music is designed to touch my affections. It's interesting. I read an article several months ago about how one of the ways men, fathers, can lead their uh, families spiritually is through singing. Allowing your children to see you sing and to be boisterous in your singing because that demonstrates that you care And it demonstrates the passion that comes with being in worship. So I encourage you to sing out. And uh, you're a good singing church, and I praise the Lord for that. Jonah chapter 1. We're going to be looking specifically at verse 4 through 6, but I want to read verse 1 through 6 because it's important for the context. Hear now the word of the living God. So the captain came and said to them, What do you mean, you sleeper, arise? Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Well, all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass will wither, and the flower will fade. But the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen. And amen. Well, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, indeed, we thank you. We thank you that we get to come before you today and worship and sing and rejoice. To have you stir our affections. To have you stimulate our thinking. To have us be drawn to you the greatest of all. As the ancient theologians called you, the ends perfectissimum. The most holy, perfect, wonderful being that we could even hope to know or imagine. And it is by your greatness and your splendor you draw us to yourself because it is most needful for our souls. We thank you for that even today. And so bless us now, O Lord. Holy Spirit, come. This is your word. This is your people. Stir their affections that they love you more, that they desire you more above all else. We ask this in Jesus' precious holy name. Amen and amen. Well, last week we started the book of Jonah, and we talked about the fact that Jonah is not about the fish. And we also talked about how Jonah wasn't about even the Ninevites, and how Jonah wasn't even about Jonah. Jonah was about, or is about, a gracious and compassionate God who pursues sinners, who pursues people who are spiritually inactive, spiritually dead. More importantly, people who are spiritually immature in order to make them mature. That's what the book about is about. A gracious and compassionate God who pursues each and every one of us. That's the overarching theme of the book of Jonah. And then we talked about Jonah's spiritual immaturity. What made him spiritually immature? What made Jonah spiritually immature is that he fundamentally misunderstood the the word of the Lord that came to him. He thought the word of the Lord was just for the people of God and not for the Ninevites, but he was wrong. And then he also misunderstood the grace of God, that God's grace isn't localized but universalized for all people everywhere. And that's why he was called to leave Israel and go to foreign lands because they need the gospel too. Now today, what I want to show you very briefly is what happens. What happens when we misunderstand the word of the Lord and misunderstand his grace? What happens when we try to assume sovereignty over our own lives instead of allowing the Lord to be sovereign over our own lives? Don't you see, that's what's in this passage. When Jonah got up and rose and ran from God, what is he doing? He's trying to be sovereign over his own life. And can I tell you, whenever you exercise sovereignty over your own life, it never goes well. I have never met anyone who says, you know what, I exercise authority over my own life, sovereignty over my own life, and you know what, it's going swell. It never does. The only time in your life you will be at peace, at rest, is when God is truly sovereign over your own life, where you allow him to dictate your, the way you live and the way you act and the way you think. That's true sovereignty. That's true freedom that can only be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see Jonah running from God. And what does all of this produce? All of this produces spiritual indifference. Spiritual indifference. Now you're sitting there and wondering, well, pastor, what is spiritual indifference? How how do I know spiritual indifference in my own life? How can we see it in the book of Jonah? Let me give you a quick example of what spiritual indifference is. Recently, I I was out eating, uh, I was out having a meal somewhere, and I can't remember exactly where, but I do remember this scene. There was a mother who brought her teenage son in, and they sat down, and they began ordering and immediately this young man whipped out his phone and started looking at his phone and his mother started talking to him and and he paid her no attention in fact even jokingly she tried to lower his phone and receive eye contact with her and I could hurt I could hear him saying hey hey stop that I'm looking at something I'm doing something and as I was sitting there I thought to myself here's a mother who is longing to have fellowship with her son, longing to talk to him, longing to know what's going on in his life. And what is he doing? He's completely oblivious to this. He's on his phone. He's not even paying attention to her. Now, you and I both know if we're talking to somebody and they pull out their phone and completely ignore us how we would feel, right? That's the essence of spiritual indifference. It's when God is trying to enter into fellowship with us, when God is trying to communicate his will to us, when God is trying to talk to us and get to know us and to have fellowship with us. Instead of us being attentive to the will of the Lord, we're spiritually on our phones. We're not paying attention to what God has to say. Why? We're so absorbed in all the other areas of our life we don't take time to focus on what God has for us. That's what we see happening in this passage. One of the clearest examples of this in the Bible is Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, when Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will stop with him and he with me. I saw several years ago, I saw an artist depict that particular verse. And what was interesting to me is that the the actual door had no knob. It was just a blank wooden door. That means Jesus couldn't look in, and there was no way for Jesus to open up that door. And that's a sign of spiritual indifference. There is no access for Jesus in our lives. Now, of course, this is not completely, but at times, this is the posture of our heart where Jesus has no access to it. No ability to correct us. No ability to lead us or guide us. That's the essence of spiritual indifference. And we see this repeatedly in this passage. So what I want to do for the remainder of our time is I want to take a look, a closer look at Jonah's spiritual indifference, because I think that these are the ways you and I manifest spiritual indifference in our own lives and how the Lord often calls us to repentance and tries to get our attention. Now. I want to look at the signs of spiritual indifference from verse four down to the end of the passage. And then I want to look at the harm of spiritual indifference. First of all, the signs of spiritual indifference. Then I want to look at the harm of spiritual indifference. First of all, the signs of spiritual indifference. The first sign of spiritual indifference is found in verse number five. Moral weakness. Notice the moral weakness of Jonah. Verse number five. Then the mariners, when when God hurled this big wind and the storm and the mighty tempest came, in verse 5 it says that the mariners were afraid and each cried out to to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Notice what Jonah did, right? Jonah knows that God is coming for him. He's not spiritually dead. He's fully aware that God is coming for him, that he has angered Yahweh. He's angered his covenant keeping God. And what does Jonah do? It says the rest of verse number five says, but Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. What is the word of God saying here? Saying this, Jonah knew what he had done. And instead of repenting, instead of facing what what he had done, Jonah ran away. And And the Hebrew here suggests that Jonah, on purpose, went down into the ship and went to sleep. This is moral weakness. Instead of addressing the sin that was in his life, instead of taking ownership of what he had done, instead of owning up to what he had caused, Jonah ran away from it. And brothers and sisters, we often do the same thing. There's some of us inside here today know that there are conversations that we need to have with brothers and sisters in the Lord, but we dilly-dally and don't do it. There are many of us in here know that there are hard things that we have to do spiritually, but we lack the moral courage to do it. That is what's happening here. That's what Jonah is doing. Jonah is showing tremendous moral weakness. Instead of addressing the sin in his life, instead of dealing with the sin in his life, Jonah fell asleep. Now, notice the second one. And this one is so egregious. Not only does Jonah have moral weakness, the second one is this, the spiritual inactivity of Jonah. Look at verse number six. This big storm is brewing, right? I mean, their whole world is coming apart. Notice the mariners. The mariners are spiritually active. They're afraid. They cried out to their God. But Jonah is completely asleep, so much so that the captain had to go down and says, What do you mean, you sleeper, arise? Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us, uh, perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Jonah is spiritually inactive when he is supposed to be spiritually active. Now, notice with me twice in this passage, it mentions that the unbelievers cried out to their God. First of all, one in verse number five, that the Mariners immediately began to cry out to their God. Then in verse number six, they call on Jonah to cry out to this God. Now, crying out to God is not simply prayer. In fact, if you're looking for a Bible study, Go through the Bible and and look at all the times this spiritual discipline of crying out to God is mentioned. I I spent so much time on this, and it was a glorious study. And here's what I found out. Here's Here's why crying out to God is so important. In fact, one commentator said it better than I ever could. He said crying out to God is an act of desperation and total concentration. It is a fervent expression of faith in God and trust in his goodness and power to act on his behalf. That's what the mariners were doing. And by the way, that's what Jonah was supposed to be doing. And here's the great irony of this passage the the, the, the person who is spiritually inactive is the one who is supposed to be spiritually mature, the prophet. That's why God came to him in the first place, because he was the one who was supposed to be spiritually mature. He was the one that was supposed to be crying out to the Lord in this time. But who instead was crying out to the Lord? Those pagans that Jonah didn't want to go to in the first place. That's the great irony of this passage. And brothers and sisters, let me say this. I've often found that as a Christian, We are called by God to be spiritually active even in the midst of the storms in our lives. We're called to be spiritually active. But oftentimes whenever storms come into our life, we we go dormant. We go spiritually inactive. Notice that Jonah was in the midst of one of the most violent storms he had ever encountered. And Jonah is asleep. When he's supposed to be spiritually active and mature. He was the one that's supposed to be crying out to the Lord. Now, later on, we see Jonah doing something that's particularly egregious. But before we go there, let me say this. In this passage, yes, the, the mariners, the sailors, they were spiritually active. But they were spiritually active to the wrong God. They weren't crying out to Yahweh. They were crying out to their God. And oftentimes, it's easy for us to point out how unbelievers, when we see them doing things in our society, to say, you know what, they're not doing it right. For instance, let me give you a few. Oftentimes, we look at unbelievers and we mock the way they're caring for the planet. We say, well, well, look at them being all crazy about global warming, all crazy about caring for the planet. Do you realize that Christians have a moral obligation to care for the planet as well? It's called exercising dominion over the earth. You know who's supposed to be the most crazy about caring for the planet? Us. Because we realize wh- that God has made this earth for us and we should care for it well. Here's another area: the area of social justice. You know, many of us decry critical race theory. Many of us decry all the things that's happening in our society today. Um, that are excesses when it comes to race but do you know who's supposed to care the most about race do you know who's supposed to care the most about injustice Christians we're not called to be spiritually inactive in that area what about the area of gender and homosexuality you know we often talk about how um, unbelievers are caring for uh, homosexuals in all the wrong ways and affirming them now look I'm not even going to talk about that aspect of it. Uh, But the point that I want to make is this. Who should be caring most for the homosexuals? Believers. We should be reaching out to those who are suffering from gender dysphoria in order to love them and bring them to the knowledge of truth. We shouldn't be spending our time uh, looking at unbelievers and critiquing them for what they're doing. And at the same time, we're not doing anything about it. Now look, I'm passionate about this, because you know what? Our testimony as believers are on the line. We can look at the world and say, look at all the wrong things they're doing, and we stay spiritually inactive on those things. Shame on us. God is calling us to be spiritually active. Here is Jonah in the midst of a storm. Everything's uh, like just falling down before him. And what is he doing? Sleeping. Sleeping when he's supposed to be up crying out to God to save the sailors. But the sailors instead are crying out to God to save all of them. You know what? Even in the time of Jonah, when Jonah was written, this was an indictment on Israel. Because Israel was supposed to be the testimony to the world, and they were not. And in many ways today, if we're not careful, we're called to be the testimony to the world, and we're not. We're often spiritually inactive. But beloved, you should be crying out daily on behalf of your country. You should be crying out daily on behalf of your neighbors and those around us. Because that's the calling of the believer, to cry out on behalf of the unbeliever. It ought not to be the other way around. But yet that's what we see in this passage, and that's what we often see in Christianity. Now look, I'm not a bride basher. I don't believe in just bashing the people of God because I know there are many of you inside here today have a heart and a passion for those that are caught in sin. But I think we need to own the fact that so often the church writ large is spiritually inactive when God is calling us to be spiritually active in every area in our society. Now, notice the last thing I want to show you about Jonah With respect to Jonah's spiritual indifference. Look at verse number nine. I know we didn't read this, but I want us to look at this. Now, the sailors, after they cast lots, and we're going to talk about this next week, but after they cast lots, they asked Jonah a bunch of questions. They said, tell us whose account this evil had come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Now, pause for a moment. I want to point this out. The sailors cared more about Jonah than Jonah cared towards them. You notice Jonah just gave them his money, and he treated them like they were his servants. But notice that they took the time to find out who Jonah was. They took the time to show interest in Jonah's life. That was way more than Jonah did them. Now, what does Jonah do in response to their questioning? He treats them with condescension and remarkable hypocrisy. Notice what Jonah says. Jonah says to them, now look, I am a Hebrew, right? And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And you almost want to say, that's a bunch of BS. You do not care one bit about serving Yahweh you don't fear Yahweh and you know I know you don't fear Yahweh you wouldn't be running from Yahweh if you truly feared Yahweh and you truly worshiped Yahweh would you be running from Yahweh the answer to our question is no of course not Jonah is a big hypocrite now here's why this is important beloved I have ministered to young people for a long time now. In in fact, when I first went into ministry, I spent a great deal of time in colleges. And even now, I try to reach out to young people. And do you know the number one reason why young people leave the church and leave the faith? is because they see the hypocrisy in the church. That's why. They see the hypocrisy. And let me tell you, you know who's most atoned to the hypocrisy in the church? young people and unbelievers they can sniff it out they can sniff it out now young people listen to me let me talk to you for a bit even though i will grant you that there's hypocrisy in the church but i want to say two things number one hypocrisy is everywhere right there's no institution you can go into that you won't see hypocrisy so singling out the church specifically for hypocrisy would be wrong but the second thing i want to tell you young people is this Even though there's hypocrisy in the church, don't throw away the church. The hypocrisy isn't with God. It's with those that follow him. Those that follow him are the hypocrites, not God. And you know what? We're sinners. We are sinners. I will grant that. But that is no reason to cast off God and his word and the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Don't do it. Because where are you gonna go in a world that has no mechanism to realize their own hypocrisy? That's where you'll end up. At least in the church, you can come and hear a sermon about how we're hypocrites and we need to change. You're not gonna hear that in the world. The world doesn't recognize its own hypocrisy. They live in it and they're content with it. We as believers ought not to be. Look, parents. We need to live in such a way we're not manifesting hypocrisy. Look, our children are looking at us and they're watching us and they can sniff it out. When we say the right things and do the right things in front of other people and when we go home we're completely different, that's hypocrisy. When we're like Jonah and preach this lofty gospel, right, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven that made sea and dry land. Even what Jonah says, was meant to be a dig against the sailors because the sailors were praying to their sea god and their localized god. And and Jonah says your gods are inferior. My god, on the other hand, is the god that rules over the sea and the dry land. Who cares? You're not serving the god you are preaching. That kind of hypocrisy is rampant in our churches. And you know what? Our children see it. And unbelievers see it. And they're not impressed by it. You as a believer, if you are a believer and you believe the faith and you preach the faith and you try to live the faith, you have to be conscious of the fact that we at times can be hypocritical. And we need to call that out and repent and move forward. But I'm telling you, we need to be careful of this because our children and the world are watching. They're seeing our hypocrisy. And how do we overcome hypocrisy? Well, first of all, humility humility. We need to own when we are hypocrites. And we need to confess that before the Lord. And we need to ask the Holy Spirit to help us not to live in a hypocritical way. But another thing is that we need to be open to correction. Look, there are times in my life when I'm being hypocritical where I just don't see it. It's not on my radar. But I'm so thankful when people call it out that I'm able to see it. And I Humble myself and be open to correction, but also repentance. Willing to repent and ask the Lord for forgiveness, and willing to move forward in the Spirit and the power of the Lord. Now, I don't have much time, but I need to give you the second one. And that is this the harm of spiritual indifference. What's the harm of spiritual indifference? Well, the harm of spiritual indifference is seen in the rest of Jonah chapter 1. Who suffers as a result of Jonah's sin? The sailors and also the Ninevites. Both of them suffer as a result of Jonah's sin. Now, listen to me, this flies in the face of our individualistic and autonomous culture. We live in a culture that says, you know what, I can sin and do whatever I want, and as long as it's not directly impacting other people, I'm okay, I'm fine. Jonah flies in the face of that. Did Jonah do anything directly to the sailors? No. And did Jonah do anything directly to the Ninevites? No. But who suffered as a result of his spiritual indifference? They did. In the book, um, Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes, the authors do a masterful job of this, of pointing out at how, There is no sin you and I commit that doesn't impact those around us. Even private sins, sins such as, uh, you know, sins that we harbor in our hearts such as anger, bitterness, or lust. Any sin that we hold privately that we think don't impact others, beloved, get that out of your mind because it does. It impacts your ability to minister to other people and for God to use you. To minister to other people, there's no such thing as private sin, and they bring this out in such an amazing way. First of all, they talked about Rahab, how Rahab, her simple act of protecting the spies actually was a blessing to her family. But right after that, Achan, Achan, who took the uh, the things that he weren't supposed to think, uh, supposed to take, how his sin actually impacted his entire family. These were private things that they did. But it had a profound impact on all of those around him. Now, pastor, why are you harping on this? Here's why I'm harping on this. By the way, I'm glad you asked. I'm harping on this because this is the essence of the gospel. Hear me, because this is so important. In Romans 5, 19, Paul says this. For as by the one man's disobedience... They were made sinners. All of us were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, they will be made righteous. The essence of the gospel is this, that even though you were not there with Adam, Adam as our representative, as our federal head, we sinned in him and that sin impacted each and every one of you inside here today. Some of you might say, well, Pastor Dennis, that's not fair. Hold on. Because Paul says that what Christ did on the cross actually impacted you and gave you the ability to be righteous, to be, to be clean before God. So if you have a problem with being in Adam, you also have a problem with being in Christ. If you don't have a problem with being in Christ, then you shouldn't have a problem with being in Adam. But the glory of the gospel says even though your sin impacts those around you, you can go before a holy God and you can repent and you can allow the work of the Holy Spirit to dominate your thinking and your heart so that he can turn you away from your sin and now your rebellion can be turned into obedience and that can have an amazing impact in your home and in your community as well. Now look. I have to draw this to a close, unfortunately. Um, Let me say this. Here's the big takeaway. There's so much more to say, but I just have to give you the big takeaway. And here's the big takeaway. Even though we are often spiritually indifferent and spiritually asleep, we have a Savior who is always awake. You know, the Bible says that we serve a God who never sleeps and never slumbers. One of my favorite texts in the Bible is Jesus when he is in the boat and a big storm comes and his, his disciples are freaking out, they're bailing water, they're yelling and screaming and they go to Jesus and they say, Jesus, don't you care that we perish? And when Jesus wakes up, what is the first thing he does? He calms the sea. What is the first thing that Jonah does when he wakes up? Nothing. You see, here's the thing that all of us need to realize. The grace of God isn't just present in your obedience. The grace of God is also present in your disobedience. What do you think brings you back from the brink? Jonah was spiritually asleep. He was spiritually indifferent. He was spiritually lost. And yet God hurled a great wind. Now, look, I've been in more storms than I can count. And I've never thought to myself, wow, God is using the storm to be a blessing to me. But as we read this text, God wasn't hurling judgment. He was hurling grace. In fact, if you look at the New Testament, the word for, uh, that Paul often uses to describe God, God's grace is ekbalo. It means literally to throw or to cast forward. God casts forward his grace. God throws his mercy at his people in order for us to be spiritually mature. And here when we see God hurling this great wind, it's not to harm Jonah. It's to heal him and bring him back. That's the essence of a gracious, compassionate God. And if you're sitting there today and you are spiritually indifferent, spiritually asleep, know that you have a Savior, gracious and compassionate God that is running toward you, that will never, ever allow you to be spiritually asleep. He will always hurl his grace and mercy toward you to bring you back to him. Let us pray. Father, Lord, um, your word is so powerful and so awesome. Father, you know my own heart. I've been so convicted and so blessedly healed as a result of reading this book and the power that's in it. Lord, what a reminder that even though at times me as one who is called to do your your will often run and often hides and often is asleep yet you hurl your grace and mercy toward me in an effort to bring me back and you do it with all of us. What a glorious and wonderful thought. Father, may we as your people know this and may we Flee to you always for your grace and your compassion. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.